Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion, unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. <laughs> If you're a fan of The Other Stories, then you might be interested to hear some of ours and our regular collaborators other shows. The Night's End podcast, created by TOS narrator Jimmy Horace himself, James Barnett, has a focus on dark fiction and will leave you screaming for The Night's End before each story is through. Miscreation, a horror audio drama, brings you scary stories performed by a band of actors in the ACAST studio in London. Season 1 is available now. The Mifsterhood of the Travelling Tales explores the various creatures and beings in mythologies around the world, area by area, from east to west. Different creatures are covered in different episodes of the podcast. And tales of what for all you weirdos out there. We describe it as the Twilight Zone meets Adult Swim, The Outer Limits, directed by David Lynch. Season 1 and 2 are available right now. Today's episode is Brain Freeze, written by Paul A. Freeman and narrated by Manny Realguy. The brain inside the glass jar is floating in a viscous fluid, and it's pulsating, pulsating as if cogitating over the capriciousness of whatever fate has landed it in this disembodied, vulnerable condition. The sight of the donor brain makes me slightly nauseous. However, it's that single synthetic eyeball balanced on a writhing fibre-optic nerve that brings me close to chucking up. The orb stares out at the government laboratory I'm standing in from behind its concave glass wall, avidly watching what's going on. 
It isn't focusing its attention on me though. In fact, it pointedly ignores me as if I'm not even here. This is understandable really. I'm not the relevant Einstein in the lab. That honour belongs to Dr. Alice Stromberg, my posh egghead of a girlfriend. The eyeball seems to be fixated on her, and if you could see Alice's lusciously curved body, flowing blonde mane and cruel blue eyes, you'd know why. I wander over to the jar and gaze inside. The pink convolutions indenting the left and right hemispheres of the brain look like smooth, river-cut canyons. And when you stand back and take into account the tapering brainstem, the overall image I get is reminiscent of a deflating hot air balloon falling out of the ether and about to crash land. I'm seriously considering tearing up my organ donor card after seeing this, I tell Alice, still struggling to keep down the takeaway pizza I've just eaten. The last thing I want is to embarrass myself in front of my renowned girlfriend. You did mention that you wanted to see what I get up to in the lab, she laughs. She moves her hand to and fro in front of the glass jar, then up and down. The eyeball follows each motion, the eye's artificial iris dilating and contracting as it focuses and refocuses on each deft movement. This is an exciting experiment, she continues. It's the first human brain that survived dual cerebral detachment. I haven't a clue what she's going on about and shrug. What I mean to say, she explains, is that we have successfully detached a physical brain from a physical body while managing to keep the organ, the brain, viable. At the same time, we have psychologically detached the mind from the reality of its current environment, separating it from the trauma that self-awareness would wreak upon it. If the mind residing inside that brain was fully conscious of its pitiful situation, it might be impossible to preserve its sanity. So how do you stop a detached brain from going doolally? I inquire. The trick is to create in the brain an altered perception of itself and its surroundings and then maintain that false perception. We do this by dosing the cerebral tissues with a variety of psychotropic drugs. I'm horrified when I finally figure out what Alice is telling me. You mean the brain's hallucinating, that the donor of this brain is under the impression they're not stuck in a jar in a government laboratory, but are traipsing around and enjoying life with the rest of us? Yeah, something like that, says Alice. We also populate the brain's hallucinations with people it sees every day. The fella in the jar can perceive me by sight, and he can hear me too, by interpreting the sound waves of my voice vibrating through the glass and through the jar's fluid. Meanwhile, and this is the important part, she says, switching on an oscilloscope at a control console, the brain pulsations allow me to interpret its emotional responses, to measure its stress levels, its psychological reaction, even its emotional state of mind. In effect, I can decipher its thoughts and respond to them accordingly. And what is he thinking now? I ask, marvelling at what a sexy scientist Alice is. She looks suddenly discomforted. As I mentioned, the brain's so pumped up on drugs and chemicals that the person he once was, the consciousness that's hidden in the grey matter between those convolutions, believes unequivocally that he's still alive and here amongst the living. The challenge will be to wean him off his chemical dependency and into accepting his restricted reality. Until then, it's best to leave him thinking he's genuinely interacting with his physical environment as a living, breathing human being. This is all a bit on the sicko side, I say, though deep down I'm secretly impressed by Alice's callous brilliance. I begin to wonder if she'll be in the running for next year's Nobel Prize for Medicine, and whether, as her significant other, I'll get an expenses-paid holiday to Sweden out of the deal. My relationship with Alice is a constant source of amazement to me, and to her too, I imagine. 
I mean, what could she possibly see in a rough and ready bloke like me? She refers to me as her muse, which is nice, I suppose, and she's always telling me that she couldn't continue her work without me. Muse, I ask you. It makes me sound like some airy, fairy Victorian poet's bit on the side. Or that Mona Lisa bird who Leonardo da Vinci was always painting, the one who sat around hour after hour with the sourest of sour pusses ever. Sorry, I've started rambling. That's Alice's fault. Ever since I've known her, she's sort of turned my head, got me thinking all kinds of weird, unbloke-like thoughts. Anyhow, this is how it all got started between us. We met at O'Malley's, a popular downtown Irish pub. I'd driven over to the laundrette with a load of washing. The weather was bloody hot and I fancied an ice cream. So I'm outside the laundrette, about to cross the street, but there's too much traffic. Then I hear it, up the road at the nearby T-junction, a screech of brakes, a thud, and a sort of an oof, as if someone got the air knocked out of them. Seconds afterwards, there's a crowd of gawkers at the site of the traffic accident, including yours truly. Some bozo has walked under a lorry. From what I can see, at the end of a bloody snail's trail on the tarmac, he's now little more than a hunk of meat, scraped raw and tenderised, caught up in the lorry's axles and barely hanging onto life, if by any chance he survived the initial impact. Suddenly, it isn't an ice cream I fancy, but a pint of bitter and a whiskey chaser. O'Malley's is close by, its brick facade punctuated with emerald green window frames and an oak door emblazoned with a four-leaf clover. It's funny, the details you notice at such times. So I drag my carcass inside and there's Alice, sitting alone at one of the cushion settees in the saloon bar, G&T in front of her, grinning up at me enigmatically, like that Mona Lisa lass. She confides in me that she enjoys slumming it in dyes like O'Malley's, that she prefers rugged fellas such as myself, that she loathes hobnobbing with her fellow brainiacs at work because they are boring as hell. So I suppose that makes us a perfect match, what with me being an aficionado of busty blondes and fancying the uninhibited Scandinavian type of bird, if you know what I mean. Tonight, in the laboratory, Alice has finally allowed me this quick peek through the window of her bizarre workplace. We had originally arranged to stay in for a pizza at my pad. I was aiming to initiate her into the world of Pink Floyd, open up a bottle of plonk and hopefully end up in the sack for an energetic session of Rumpy Pumpy. But then Alice turned my plans on their head, telling me, after eating the pizza and serenading her with Pink Floyd, it was high time she invited me to her lab and let me in on her secrets. She wanted me, a working class guy who doesn't have a single qualification to his name, to observe firsthand her revolutionary experiments into mental and cerebral manipulation. So we drove to the labs, where she walked me past the security guards as if she was queen of the facility and swiped her ID card to get us through the secrecy of several steel doors. And hey presto, here we are, alone with a disembodied brain in a jar. Alice winks at me. Let's see what happens if I reduce the brain's psychotropic drug intake, she says. She turns a dial on the control console and I feel a pang of unease. For some reason I have doubts about the benevolence to society, to humanity at large, of what's being accomplished here. I look at the suddenly agitated fluid in the glass jar, at the bubbles rising around the brain like aeration in a fish aquarium, and I'm even more uncertain what to make of this Frankensteinish horror show. I'm gripped with the urge to protest the immorality of Alice's experiment. Surely there's an ethics code that forbids the torturing of a donated brain that is still compass mentis and therefore technically a still living, thinking human being. Yet when I try to voice my concerns, no words emerge from my mouth. I attempt to step back from the jar and take stock, but my limbs are numb and won't move. My head movement, too, is immobilised, leaving me staring into that artificial eye with the disembodied brain looming up behind it. 
I expect you're finally grasping the reality of the situation, says Alice, as if reading my increasingly lucid thoughts. Now that I've used the console to adjust your brain chemistry, the drug-induced scenarios I've been feeding you to prevent the onset of insanity are falling away. She holds her mobile phone in front of me, showing me pictures of an Irish pub, a smiling pizza delivery guy, a rock music album cover. The saloon bar at O'Malley's, the pizza we ate tonight and the music we listen to are all fake memories, she explains, all created by drugs, auto-suggestion and visual stimuli. Finally, I understand. And in answer to that revelation, the fraudulent reality I've built up around me melts away from my consciousness. I'm no longer standing beside Dr. Alice Stromberg, my super fit to die for girlfriend who prefers a rough diamond to a polished egghead. Instead, I'm staring out at her from inside the jar, through a synthetic eyeball while she coldly conducts her experiments on what remains of the physical me. The road accident at the T-junction is your only true memory, Alice continues showing me a picture of my crushed body trapped under a lorry. If I could, I would cry. Yet in my condition, all I can do is ruefully reflect that it's too late to tear up my organ donor card. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Other Stories. Brain Freeze, written by Paul A. Freeman, narrated by Manny Real Guy. Edited by Duncan Muggleton with music by Duncan Muggleton and Tom Robson. And sound effects provided by freesound.org. The episode illustration is provided by Luke Spoon of Carry On House. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can help support the show over at patreon.com forward slash Hawk and Cleaver. You can join our book club, movie club, and writing exercises over at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Hawk and Cleaver. T shirts, mugs, posters, and comic books are available at gumroad.com forward slash Hawk and Cleaver. And you can get help with your short stories and your podcasts by heading to theotherstories.net forward slash services. The Other Stories is a production of the Story Studio Hawk and Cleaver and is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means don't change it, don't sell it, but by all means share the hell out of it. So, until next time. <laughs>